I want to do something a little bit different just to start off with. Um, this is not a rhetorical question. I do want your feedback. What is a legacy? More specifically, what is a Christian legacy? Any words or ideas come to your mind when I ask those two questions? What is a legacy or what more specifically is a Christian legacy? Answers, please just throw it out if you got something. Dedication. History. Love. Disciples, faithful, resurrection. Anybody else? What is a legacy or what is a biblical legacy? You don't just have to throw out a word. You could actually give me a sentence if you want. If somebody's brave enough to throw a whole, throw some old words together, you know, and make a sentence, you can do that as well. Honorable, an inheritance. I think that's what the, the world, when you throw out the word legacy, that's what they immediately think about, right? I want to leave a legacy for my children, and they're thinking about an inheritance, money, land, property, something along those lines. That's why I, I asked the next question, what is a biblical legacy? Grace, memories, faithfulness. I wrote a definition down, and this is just my definition, so, you know, you don't have to really make it a thing living in such a God glorifying way that the consequences of your actions positively impact the world for Jesus after your life is over let me read that again living in such a God glorifying way that the consequences of your actions positively impact the world for Jesus after you are gone or after your life is over. There is a song that I first heard in 2002. I have used it in multiple videos and um, senior services. Um, one of, I think, one of the uh, best songwriters of the last 20 years is a woman by the name of Nicole Nordman. And uh, she wrote a song called Legacy, and I want to leave a legacy. How will they remember me? That I choose to love? That I point to you enough to make a mark on things? I want to leave an offering. A child of mercy and grace who blessed your name unapologetically and leave that kind of legacy. The Bible is filled with people who either left a legacy or lived in such a way that they left destruction and misery in their wake. For the most part, we like to study those people that we consider to be the heroes of the faith, those who left a positive example for all of us to follow. Well, we're not going to do that in this series. We're going to be looking at the life of a man who did not live to honor God. He did not leave a biblical legacy for other people to follow. Absalom was the third child born to King David, and his life is tragic. And it leaves us with warnings as the readers about what we can learn about a legacy and how to honor God by seeing how he didn't do it, right? So we're going to learn from his mistakes. We're going to learn from his life in in 
the negative sense, and then we're going to take from that and say, what can we learn so that we don't do some of the very same things with the very same spirit that he did? Now, the tragedy of Absalom does not start with his life alone. He was not born and raised in a vacuum. His life was impacted by the environment in which he was born into, the family in which he was born into, and how he was raised in the midst of this family. Now, psychologists for years have studied and tried to come up with a conclusion. Are we who we are by nature or are we who we are by nurture? Which one is it? The reality is to simply put the onus on one or the other is a mistake. Humans are not simply a result of nature or simply a result of nurture. We are a product of a mixture of the two, nature and nurture. And so it is true with Absalom. He was not simply born to be this tragic character that his life devolved into. The circumstances of his family played a large role in making him the man that he became. The Bible now doesn't really give us a detailed description of his early life, how he grew up. To be honest, he is a side character in the larger story of David. And it's actually in studying some of the aspects of David's life that we can see the dynamics that get set that push the trajectory of Absalom's life. So I want to do this morning, before we actually get into Absalom's life proper, which Brother James will do next week, I actually want us to, to kind of start with David. And, and I want us to look at one of the aspects of this life that Absalom was born into. So let's talk about David for a moment. More specifically, let's talk about David and his marriages and his women. Now, David was anointed king of Israel to be the king after Saul, correct? And he was anointed king when he was just a boy, 1 Samuel 16. And as David grew in popularity, I mean, after all, he killed a giant named Goliath. Saul initially decides, I can actually use this young man. I can use this young man for my own benefit. I can use this young man to uh, further my kingdom. In fact, he gives his daughter, Michal, to him in marriage, 1 Samuel 18. But soon the people begin loving David more than they love Saul. Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. So Saul begets this jealousy, start, starts rising up in Saul. And Saul decides, I've got to end this young man's life. I have to kill him. He throws a spear at him and at one point trying to kill him. He sets this plan and this trap to kill David. And David, with the help of his wife flees from Saul and becomes a fugitive on the run. And most of the story that we look at then becomes David honoring Saul by not killing Saul on multiple occasions and he had the chance, right? 
one time in a cave, and then he, uh, I think he snuck over to his, um, to his bed one night and had multiple opportunities to kill him and never did. He wasn't going to touch God's anointed. But one aspect of this fugitive on the run story that we forget about is that David never goes back for his wife. He, in a sense, abandons her. He never goes back for her. He never makes plans to meet her somewhere or, hey, you sneak out in the middle of the night and I'll take you and we'll run and, we'll, and I'll get you out of there. That never happens. Sadly, Saul eventually dies by committing suicide on the battlefield. And David goes to God at this point and says, okay, what do I do? Is it time to go back to Jerusalem? Do I walk in and say, hey, the king is here? Like, what do I do next? And God tells him, I want you to go to Hebron in Judah. And there you will be anointed the king of Judah. Don't go back to Jerusalem yet. In fact, it's going to be seven more years before David actually goes to Jerusalem to become the king of all of Israel. For seven years... He is in Hebron, and he's just the king of Judah. And that's in 2 Samuel chapter 1 and chapter 2. Now I want us to go to 2 Samuel chapter 3. And I just want to read verses 2 through 5. And you're like, I'm going to read this, and you're going to be like, well, that's not a text we usually look at and preach from and dissect and dig into. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to build a backstory, right? I'm trying to frame a backstory so that we know what Absalom is coming into, okay? And here's what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 2. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel. His second, Chiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. And the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. And fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And sixth, Ethereum of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. Now... When David gets to Hebron, he's already taken two other wives. Okay? So he never goes back for his first wife. She's staying in Jerusalem. He is on the run. And while he is a fugitive trying to run from Saul, he marries two more women. When he gets to Hebron, he marries four more women. He now has seven wives in Hebrew, in six wives in Hebron, and one is back in Jerusalem. And we are told that he has six boys, six sons, and that is not including daughters. Okay? Six sons, not including daughters. It is here in this text that we first see the name Absalom. And he is born to a princess named Maacah. He is the third born son of David. By the way, side note, this is also where Michal comes back into the picture. When David becomes king of Hebron, do you know what he now wants? Now he wants his wife Michal to be with him and his other six wives. So David 
send servants to Jerusalem to demand that McCall come and be with him in Hebron. Here's the only problem. When he never showed back up for McCall, Saul gave her away to be married to somebody else. She has been married to another man, and David says, no, 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 she's my wife, she's coming with me. And it's a sad, sad thing that we read in 2 Samuel 3.16. You can just look at it. Um, it says, but her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Baharim. Then Abner, the servant of David, said to him, go and return. So he is living his life with this wife that David never came back for, never abandoned. He is now married to her until David wants her, and then she is forced to leave, and her husband is now following her, weeping and crying, and he's very, very upset that his wife is now taken from him because David wants him, wants her to be one of his seven wives in Hebron. In total, right now we got seven wives, we got six boys plus girls. I can only imagine the tension and the chaos of this family dynamic that David has created. As a young boy, Absalom is now going to be surrounded by his father's six other wives and all of his brothers, sisters, half-brothers, and half-sisters, all raised in this harem that David has. But it doesn't stop there. I, I mentioned to you, after seven years, David eventually does go back to Jerusalem to become the king of the entire nation. He does this at the age of 30 when he moves back to Jerusalem. So before the age of 30, he's got seven wives. Then we look at 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. This is now him going back to Jerusalem. And David took more wives and concubines from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron. And more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of him that were born to him in Jerusalem. Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Ephelet. Now in total, we have, 13 more, we have 13 more sons, and now in total, 19 sons. We know one of the daughter's names. Her name is Tamar. She's the one mentioned daughter. She'll play into the story in the coming weeks. And this does not include the, the child he lost with Bathsheba, nor does it include all the children he had with concubines. What a disaster of a family this is. All at the hands of David. A man after God's own heart. With son after son after son and daughter after daughter after daughter. With wife after wife after wife and concubine after concubine after concubine. This is the family dynamic that Absalom is raised in. Now, this kind of polygamy and family structure has caused people to ask the question, was it a sin for David to have multiple wives? Now, many skeptics are quick to point this out in the Old Testament 
to be critical of the Bible and be critical of Christianity. Many false converts and religions have tried to use polygamy of the Old Testament to argue for multiple marriages today. Think of the Mormon church when it originally established. So how are we to approach the issue in general and more specifically in the life of Absalom? We first need to understand this. There is a difference between a descriptive text and a prescriptive text. Okay? If you're taking notes, that's a good thing to write down. A prescriptive text is God saying, here are the, is the prescription on how you are to live. Here's the rules. Here's my law. Here's my will. I'm, I'm laying this out, and I'm telling you this is how you're supposed to live. A descriptive text is telling you what happened. Okay? So just because the Old Testament has stories of men who took multiple wives, that is just a description of what happened, not a prescription for how we are to behave and live. Does that make sense? You see the difference between the two? Prescriptive and descriptive. What kind of text do we have here with David? This is descriptive. God is not saying, hey, do what David did. This is a descriptive text. This is a narrative. Scripture nowhere presents polygamy as part of God's design. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it upholds monogamy as the normal structure for marriage. Okay? In Genesis 1, we have something really, really cool that happens. God does this complementary pairs thing in Genesis 1. He, he does this complementary pairs as he's creating the, the order. He has heaven and earth, complementary. He has sea and dry lands, complementary. He has light and dark, complementary. Even the sequence of creation days offer a complementary pair. In days 1 and 3, God forms... Heaven and earth. Days four and four through six, he fills them. There's this complementary thing that happens all through the text in Genesis 1. And, and then guess what we have in Genesis, in, uh, Genesis 1 on day 6? We have another complementary pair that, pair that is named. Adam and Eve. One and one together. It's the pair, Right? This is what God is doing as he's laying out the structure for marriage. This marriage pattern of one man and one woman is established at creation in a monogamous, committed relationship. It is both commanded and commended through the rest of Scripture. The idea of multiple wives actually comes from Near Eastern cultures, pagan cultures, that Israel just falls in line with. If someone that we read about in Scripture is a polygamist, they take multiple wives, they are following the nations, not Yahweh. Okay, let me say that again. Anyone who takes multiple wives in the Old Testament is following the pagan nations, not following Yahweh. At the time of Jesus... 
the Jews were still okay, for the most part, with multiple wives. It was the Romans who weren't. Now, the Romans started correcting the Jews on one man and one woman. I mean, think about that. How far had the Jewish nation come from the original created order of marriage that the pagan Romans are now telling them, yeah, having multiple wives is vile and immoral. Now, what happened was the Jewish nation began adopting that. And polygamy started going away as they lived underneath Roman rule. Jesus actually addresses marriage in Mark 10, 2 through 9. You want to turn there, you can with me. Mark 10, 2 through 9. Now, Pharisees are going to come to Jesus and they're going to try to manipulate him, right? They're going to try to trick him. They're going to try to test him. They're going to try to trap him. This is what the, the Pharisees did all the time when it came to Jesus. And they're going to try to do it again. And they're going to do it with marriage. Here's what Mark records, records for us as Jesus talks to the Pharisees. It says, the Pharisees came up to him in order to test him. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did, what did Moses command you? And they said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they, they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. The Pharisees wanted to debate Mosaic case law. Jesus bypasses Deuteronomy for the time, and he quotes instead the creation narrative in Genesis 2, emphasizing the created order of things from the beginning. The rest of the New Testament then follows Jesus. The rest of the New Testament comes along and says, this is the, the, the pattern, the structure, and the order of marriage. One man, one woman coming together and the two becoming one flesh. And what God has joined together, let no one separate. The church elders who lived and served, or were to live and serve as examples of faithfulness in 1 Peter chapter 5, 3. The elders were told to be one woman men. I think the ultimate reason why polygamy is wrong is given to us in Ephesians 5. Paul in Ephesians 5 says this, marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. Marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. God did not institute monogamy in the created order randomly. He didn't say, you know what, let's just, uh, I don't know, I mean, we could have one to four or, you know, one man and six women or let's just do one to one. Let's just... Like it was just some random thing he threw together. It was always going to be a picture of Christ in the church. You do know marriage exists to be a picture of the gospel, not the other way around. The reason why marriage exists is because it was always supposed to picture the gospel. 
was always supposed to be Christ in the church. And as Christ only has one bride, so marriage on earth testifies to that truth. Men are supposed to have one wife, just as Christ has one bride. So we can see from this short survey that David should not have had more than one wife. Furthermore, in Deuteronomy 17, 17, there was actually a, a law that God gave telling the kings, do not marry multiple women so that your hearts do not get strayed. Because he knew if you start marrying multiple women, you're going to do it with pagans, you're going to do it with people that don't follow Yahweh, and your heart's going to be pulled far away, which is exactly what happened to Solomon. He says, and you shall not acquire many wives for yourself, lest his heart be turned away. So to answer the question directly, is it, it is and always has been a sin to take more than one wife. Clearly, it has been and it will always be a sin to have more than one wife. David was in rebellion to the created order and to the law of God to take more than one wife. And just because the Bible describes David taking multiple wives doesn't mean it's right. So this is a sinful family situation that Absalom was born into. And it has a horrible impact on David's children in general and Absalom specifically, as we will see in this series. You with me so far with all that? I know it's a lot, but we got to lay all that out because I, I want you to, I mean... Even laying it out is messy, right? I mean, even me trying to describe what David did is kind of a mess. I mean, I thought about that. I thought, well, I'm describing this and it's kind of, it's kind of all messy. And then it clicked in my brain. Well, of course it's messy. This whole thing is a mess. <laughs> it should be messy. When you're trying to describe the wives of David and the kids of David and, and, and who belonged to who and where they came from and how many, of course it's going to be messy. Now imagine the family life. I mean, we almost can't. We can't even wrap our minds around what these kids must have been dealing with as they were born into this family. This series is titled what? Legacy. What's it called? Legacy. Just in case you didn't know, you're going to see it up on the screen all the time. Hopefully, pretty soon, on both screens. We're talking about leaving a legacy in this series. And a godly marriage is one way that we can accomplish this. I was very careful at how I worded that sentence. A godly marriage is one way that we can accomplish this. It is not the way. It's not the only way. It is one of the ways. If you are married, if you're going to get married at some point, the kind of marriage you have will literally change the trajectory of the generations that come after you. Listen to me. The kind of marriage that we have will impact the generations that come after us. So this is an important question. What is the surpassing goal of marriage? We've already hinted at it, have we not? In a marriage that leaves a legacy, Jesus is ultimate, the marriage is not. 
Let me say that again. In a marriage that leaves a legacy, Jesus is ultimate. The marriage is not. Marriage exists to magnify the truth and worth and beauty and greatness of God and His gospel. Two people coming together as one with a desire that they both have. I want my marriage and my life to magnify the truth and the worth and the beauty and the greatness of God and his gospel. When this momentary marriage that you have is over, what do you want people to say about it? What do you want the most important takeaway that people have of your marriage to be? I believe the answer for all Christians should be the same. They made it all about Jesus. They made it all about Jesus. That means, those of you who are not married and are, will, be, will be or are looking to be married, you better pick somebody who wants to make it all about Jesus. You ain't going to fix them. You're not going to change them. You better find somebody from the get-go that wants to make it all about Jesus. Here's the best dating advice I can give somebody. You ready? You ready? You ready? <laughs> best dating advice I can give somebody. Run after Jesus as hard and as fast as you can. And when you're doing that, look to your right and look to your left and find somebody who's running as fast and as hard as you are and pick from that pool. But so often that's not what we do because we, we, we have this longing and desire to be desired and loved so bad that we're willing to settle. It don't work. I mean, we, many of you could testify to that, could you not? It doesn't work. Run after Jesus as fast as you can. I don't care how old you are. If you're 65 and you're looking to date, Run after Jesus as fast as you can and then look beside you to see who is running after Jesus like I'm running after Jesus. And commit yourself to somebody like that. A godly marriage is one where one woman and one man for one lifetime make a covenant to love each other like Jesus. It's not what David did. That kind of marriage, a marriage that says we want to make it about Jesus. We want to run after Jesus. Me and my wife have been married now for 22 years. Right? Yeah, that's right. Wait. Yeah, that's right. 22 years. This uh, next month will be 28 years we've been together. Um, marriage is hard. 
Marriage is work. It's work in the best way, but it's work. There ain't nothing easy about marriage. If, if your marriage is easy, you ain't fighting enough. You know what I'm saying? Like somebody's being too quiet, just letting everything slide all the time. Can't do that. We get closer together as a couple when I get closer to Jesus and she gets closer to Jesus. Right? When, when God is ultimate, when Jesus is ultimate, and my life is about Jesus and her life is about Jesus, we get closer together. There's this picture that's always used. If you got the man and you got the woman and you got Jesus and both of them are running after Jesus, look what's happening to them. They're getting closer and closer together as they're both running after Jesus. That's why Jesus is ultimate and the marriage is not. A godly marriage like this will leave a legacy. It will leave a godly legacy for the generations that come after you. Now, make no mistake, two people can decide, we're going to run after Jesus, we're going to love Jesus, we're going to follow Jesus. You're still going to make mistakes. You're not going to raise your kids perfect. You're going to mess up. They're they're probably going to need therapy at some point. That's okay. It's perfectly fine. My kids are all going to need to go to therapy to talk about things that dad did wrong. That's okay. There is grace for that. There is grace for the mistakes. Love covers a multitude of sins. And there's grace in spite of the failures. But I, and, and, and look at David's life. How, did God bless David mightily? There's no, way we, there's no way we can say David was not blessed mightily by God. But make no mistake, he was blessed mightily by God Not because of his multiple marriages, but in spite of his multiple marriages. That's why we call it grace. However, listen carefully because this is true. We're not going to like it, but it's true. The failures in our marriage, whether the marriage fails entirely or whether there are just marriage failures in the marriage, is going to impact the next generation. Now we hate to hear that. Because that means the mistakes and failures that I made are going to impact my kids. But that's true. Like, we're not, we're not going to do us any good in here to pretend like that's not true. That is true. Our kids are going to deal with the stuff and the areas where we, we didn't obey the Lord like we should have. David's kids suffer for the consequences of his sin. His family life was in shambles from the get-go. His kids struggle mightily, and no, no, none of them more so than Absalom. And that's what this series is going to be about. It is going to be about looking at this man, Absalom, the things that impacted his life, the decisions he made, the choices that he made, the rebellion, the the spirit that he had, and how he refused to honor God but do things his way. And let me say this as we close, just as a practical matter. I am not going to raise my kids perfectly. You are not going to raise your children perfectly. None of you have raised your children perfectly. 
I, I pray that your desire was to leave a godly legacy for them. But let me also say this. Yes, your failures inside of marriage or, or a failed marriage is going to impact your children. But at some point, your children are old enough that they have to deal with their own junk. We cannot perpetually say, well, my parents weren't this and they didn't do this and they didn't that. So therefore, I have this built in excuse not to be what I'm supposed to be. See, that's what Absalom could have done. Absalom could have just thrown up his head and said, well, how can you expect me to be a godly man after what my dad did, bringing us into this crazy marriage and crazy family? God doesn't go, oh, okay, well, then you got an excuse. No. We don't have a built-in excuse because we were raised by human beings who make mistakes. Right? So part of the, the legacy journey that we're on is parents deciding, marriages deciding, I want to live in such a way in this marriage that I want to leave a godly legacy for my children. But in the areas that your parents fell short and didn't do that, your desire shouldn't be, well, then I can go and do whatever I want and mess up because after all, my parents blew it. No, your desire should be, here are the things that my parents did well. Here are the things that my parents helped me with and they raised me with and they taught me. And, and you know what? I want to now take those things, amplify them, maybe get better in the areas that they were weak. And I want to right now work on myself so that I can become a godly man or woman so that my life now impacts the, the generations after me. Not throw up your hands and say, well, I had it tough. Listen, there's sympathy for you having it tough. There's grace for you having it tough. I'm looking at people in this audience right now. I know your life story. And it was a mess. What you were raised in, what you were brought into was a mess. And here you are with a desire to serve Jesus and to love Jesus and to follow Jesus. And now you're raising your children to love Jesus and follow Jesus. Praise God for it. That's what legacy is all about. My parents weren't perfect. They made mistakes. I ever tell you that one time my mom slapped me? She did too. She slapped me. I wanted to call CPS, but yeah. <laughs> no. Uh, she did apologize. <laughs> Took me a while to forgive her, though. No. Um, my dad wasn't perfect. My mom wasn't perfect. I'm not perfect. My wife is not perfect. My children will not be perfect. But when we desire to live in such a way, to live in such a God-honoring way, that we look forward to seeing the consequences of the positive life we live so that we have an impact on those generations after us for Jesus. One day, I'm going to be in a casket. It may be in this very room. My body's going to be right there. Somebody's going to be preaching my funeral. And at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, I want people to say of my life, he wasn't perfect, he made mistakes, he drove me crazy, whatever it may be. But Neil tried to make it about Jesus. Tried to make his marriage about Jesus. That 
will leave a legacy for the people that come after me. Not that I was perfect, but that my desire was to make it about Jesus. And if we will all commit to that, then the same thing can be said of all of us. Not well-traveled, not well-read, not well-to-do, not well-bred. But I want to hear instead, well done, my good and faithful one. Is that not what we want? I look forward to this series. I look forward to studying how not to do it so that we can make sure we're doing it the way God intends.